Can you hear me now? Yes, let's pray. Um, Father, um, we thank you for sending your son to be our living hope. We thank you for the gospel that changes everything. We thank you for um, just the opportunity to call on you um, in good times and in bad times. We thank you for the freedom to come before your throne and bear it all, because you know it already. Um, Just thank you for being a good, good father. I pray that you allow us to settle in and hear what you have for us today and that your word would go deep and change us for your glory and for our good and the good of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Kids are dismissed. Bam, I nailed that. So glad I remembered that. Um, Because Cliff was not going to remember that. Um, uh, We have a special guest speaker today. His name is Cliff Wright. Um, Many of you know Cliff uh, or know about Cliff. He was the metro area director for Young Life for a number of years. and he now works with the Charlotte Eagles and can share more about that. But Cliff loves Jesus. He um, he loves going after kids and teenagers and young people that are far from Jesus, that it's slightly edgy and dangerous to consider going after them for Jesus. And so I have grown to love that about Cliff. And so you're going to get to hear from him today. Uh, so Cliff, come on up and we'll go from there. Thanks. Appreciate you. I noticed a lot of people carrying water bottles when uh, they came in, so I went and got mine. Hydrate or dihydrate, that's what I always say. Um, it is really, uh, it's really an honor and a privilege to be here with you all today. Um, I love Christ Point. Uh, even back when it was uh, Wren Bible, I loved it then. Um, some of you are like, what? We used to, yes, you did. Um, but anyway, I also love your pastor, James, uh, who to me epitomizes um, a shepherd. And uh, he is just an incredible, incredible man. Uh, and I am better for knowing him and being friends with him. So uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And if you know this, which I'm guessing you do, you can uh, recite it along with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, trespasses, debts, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Matthew 18 says this, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a servant or may be compared to a king who wished to settle up accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of talents. Uh, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had um, until payment could be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which denarii are less than talents. FYI, it's important to this story. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. For his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay all the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My name's Cliff. I do work for the Charlotte Eagles. The Charlotte Eagles is a mission organization that uses the platform of competitive soccer uh, to uh, share the love of Jesus with people, introduce them to him, uh, and help them grow in their faith and to launch Christian leaders. So we do all of those things uh, through this silly little game uh, where you have to use your feet, where you're not allowed to use your hands. Um, it's the world's game. Some of you uh, may not be into soccer. That's okay. Three billion people on earth are. Um, and, uh, and so we find that the, the game opens a lot of doors. Um, and, uh, and it's a really cool thing that we get to do. Um, I don't want to spark jealousy here, but I have in my house a miracle machine. I don't know if you have one. I've lived in houses that don't have one before. Um, as a father of four, so there's six of us, our household in a word is buck wild, hyphenated. Uh, it is, it is crazy. And this machine comes to our rescue. We use it at least twice a day. Uh, and, uh, you can put, this is gonna blow your minds, you can put dishes that are, have all manner of filth on them inside of this thing cups utensils and you put them inside and then they come out clean on the other side it's a dishwasher it is absolutely amazing and without it i think that our family would have about two to three hours less capacity for destruction um, every single day and but i tell you i have discovered in recent weeks the most important crucial part of this miracle machine um, you can see it right here. Um, it is the spring. The spring in the dishwasher that opens the soap dispenser is the most important part because mine doesn't work. And so, you know, when the soap in, in what's supposed to happen is that the spring at a certain part of the dishwashing cycle is supposed to open up releasing what for many of us now is is a prepackaged pod, it releases that into the dishwasher, and then this soap starts sudsing and foaming and uh, and being shot around the dishwasher, and that cleansing agent is what makes all of the difference in the dishwasher. That cleansing agent, which is frothing and and boiling the dishes, 
is what transforms the dishes. The problem is that if the soap doesn't come out, a lot of times the dishes are worse than when they went in. See, the dishwasher no longer is a dishwasher, it's a dish warmer. And let me tell like, like the, the plates, they still get really hot, they still are impacted by the dishwasher, but they are not transformed. And like that peanut butter on the knife that used to be like supple and pliable is now brown cement when it comes out. And, uh, and I don't know if you know this because your dishwashers probably work, but Greek yogurt, when exposed to high heat, is transformed into white paint that you have to take your fingernails and scratch off. Now, I do want to cut quinoa a break. Um, if you leave quinoa on your dishes, it doesn't matter if the detergent comes out at all. Quinoa is an ancient grain. We don't possess the technology to break it down. And neither does your body. It's like corn. But without the cleansing agent, without the cleansing agent, the dishes are only impacted. They're not transformed. And without forgiveness, churning and frothing through the church of Jesus Christ, we become uh, like my dysfunctional dishwasher. We are uh, we are externally impacted, but we are not transformed. At best, we have some sort of external uh, interaction with what is supposed to be happening uh, and have an external impact on the world around us, but we lack the transformational power that is supposed to uh, define a Christian and a Christian church. As Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, um, as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, we uh, we see that he teaches them to essentially ask for four broad categories. You can see it up here on this next slide. Um, the four broad areas of request that Jesus teaches his disciples to ask for are daily bread, forgive us, no temptation or evil, and then thy kingdom come. These are the four main categories. Um, and it's, it's really cool. This is uh, our daily sustenance our forgiveness, our spiritual safety, and then uh, our existential needs, our meta-narrative needs. Um, you can see here, next slide, uh, that if you were to see a list uh, of everything that God wanted you to ask him for, and it was daily bread, so the meeting of physical needs, uh, spiritual safety, and metaphysical or meta narrative existential needs like thy kingdom come. We're supposed to pray thy kingdom come, God. Like the story that we find ourselves in, Lord, make it be. If you were to see that list, you could be forgiven uh, for not thinking that forgiveness is necessary. But Jesus puts our need for forgiveness right up next to our daily bread, um, our spiritual safety. And the meeting of our meta narrative existential needs. Um, the uh, for the remainder of this sermon, I'd like for us to think about forgiveness. Uh, three points here. Next slide. Uh, three points here uh, that forgiveness is the beginning of our story. That we have forgiveness along the way in our story, and that forgiveness is the end of our story. So, if you're taking notes, God bless you. 
uh, for trying to keep up. But forgiveness is the beginning, forgiveness along the way, and forgiveness at the end. When I was 15 years old, my dad got me a gift, um, wheels. He got me a car. Uh, here's a picture of my car. Uh, this is not the exact one, but this is the exact one. Uh, I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. This is a 1995 bright blue, white-topped Ford Bronco. My dad bought it on eBay, probably for about $5,000. Uh, with inflation, now it's worth about $5,000. Um, my dad bought this on eBay from the Utah Department of Agriculture, bought a one-way ticket uh, out to Utah, and then drove uh, this blue bowling ball of love all the way back across the country to me. It was incredible. I mean, there were no carpet on the floors. There was rubber mats, so you can spray it out with a hose. Uh, there was, um, there was, there, it was a stick shift. Uh, the speedometer topped out at about 75 miles an hour, and so when you started driving that fast, it would just bounce, you know, um, and I did see it uh, bounce a few times. Um, my favorite feature uh, was that there was no center console. I don't know what happened to it, but there was a little bolt hole in the floor, um, and uh, and I drove this thing around uh, around around Greensboro growing up. Uh, because there was no center console, you could actually walk from the front seat, the driver's seat, to the back while you were moving, which I did. Um, and then, uh, and then there were roll down windows, but there was one electric window and it was the back. And so on a good day in the Greensboro springtime, you could plug in Dave Matthews band or Blink 182 and roll all three windows down and let your, uh, let your flow of hair just go. It was a thing of glory. This was the only Bronco like this in Greensboro. So it wasn't, my friends would never say like, Hey, I thought I saw you driving today. You either saw me or you didn't. Because it was the only one in Greensboro. The reason my dad got me such a chariot is because he knew that I was going to run it into things. And I did not disappoint. I ran my Bronco into so many things. I hit lampposts. I hit garbage, uh, garbage cans. I hit other cars. Uh, I hit deer. I hit snakes, which I will not apologize for. Um, I... Uh, uh, I hit I, I hit other cars. Um, uh, I may have hit a pet or two. I've hit mailboxes with this car. But one night, I truly outdid myself, and I hit a church. To be fair, the church jumped out in front of me. I couldn't see it coming. Um, but uh, but it was this night. It was I was hanging out for the first time with some friends in a different part of Greensboro, and uh, cell phones had kind of just become a thing. Uh, we had those flip phones with one game on it, Snake, right? Just don't eat your own tail and you can keep playing forever. Um, and uh, one of my friends, she had left her phone. It must have fallen out of her pocket in the back seat. And so as I'm driving home this night, I hear this buzzing in the back seat. Now, if this was in a part of Greensboro that I was more familiar with, I would have exercised the no center console option and just walked to the back while I was driving and, and found the phone. But I, being in a different part of the city, I was like, you know what? I'm going to pull over into this parking lot and then I'm going to look for the phone because I'm a responsible adult. So, uh, so I pull into this parking lot. It's late at night. Uh, I put the, I put the, the Bronco in neutral and then I just walk to the back seat and I find the phone. Um, I should mention that the uh, as I'm in the back seat, I become aware of a few different things. One, that uh, that the parking lot was not flat like I thought it was. Um, also, that I left the car in neutral. Also, I did not mention the emergency brake because I didn't know about it. 
okay? I'd only had the car for a couple of years. Um, and uh, and then I, so I became aware of the fact that with all of these factors combined, plus gravity, um, the car was rolling downhill in this uneven parking lot. And then what should happen to be at the bottom but a strong brick church? And as I picked up the phone, I said, hey, I have your phone. And then I realized, and I said something, and I threw it down. And I jumped between the front seats. I was a soccer player, so I tried to slide tackle the brake pedal. But just as my foot was like this far away from the brake pedal, the car hit the corner of the church, and my face smashed up against the, the windshield. I got out. I looked at the church. It was brick. The church is built on the rock. Okay, and it shall not be moved. The church was fine. There was no damage to it. Uh, there were no cameras. Uh, however, I looked at the Bronco, and I would describe it as a hot dog bun with no hot dog in the middle. It hit the corner of that church square on. And so for the rest of my time owning the Bronco, I looked like I was driving around with an empty taco or, or an open book at the front. I've always tried to be an open book. I tried to make my car an open book. Um, but uh, the amazing thing, so I drove home and I kind of tiptoed into my parents' uh, bedroom. We, had, we love this car so much. We actually, after we sold it, we got another one. There's another slide here. Um, this is me as an adult with, uh, with the round two of, of the Utah Department of Agriculture Bronco. Um, uh, but my dad, my dad bought it, so it's there, and I will get it sometime. Um, so I get home, and I tiptoe into my parents' room because i gotta, I got to tell them, you know. And so I, I creep around to my dad's side of the bed, and I go, Dad, good news. I'm okay. And uh, he wakes up, and he goes, what, what, what happened? I was like, Dad, I'm okay. He's like, good, what happened? I was like, I ran the Bronco into something. He was like, what would you do this time? I was like, I ran it into a church. <laughs> he said, what? I said, just come outside and see. So he comes outside, walks out, full moon, North Carolina, beautiful summer night. And he walks outside and he comes to the front and he makes what I remember as an imperceptible but dead on Tim Allen, Tim Toolman Taylor grunt. And he goes, and he starts walking back to the house. You know, when this, when you're a teenager and you wreck your car, there's a couple of questions. One, am I in trouble? Right? Uh, he was walking back into the house, so I figured I'm, I'm clear there. Uh, and then two is who's going to pay for this? And I had to know the answer to the second question. So as my dad is walking back towards the house, I say, Dad, who's going to pay for this? And he goes, I don't know. We'll talk about it in the morning. And you know what? We never did. We never talked about it again. But here's the incredible thing, guys, is that I inherently knew, and all of us know, that when there's a damage done, somebody's got to pay for it. And it doesn't matter if you talk about it or not. Like, it's got to get paid for. And so here are our options. My dad could pay for it, for a new bumper. I could pay for a new bumper. Or we could sell it at full price to some other schmuck, and he essentially pays for the bumper. But the thing is, is that when there is an offense, when there is a damage done, there is a payment required, and we know that. 
We know that. We know that you can't just say you're forgiven and and an offense just vanishes into thin air. My dad forgave me for wrecking the car. I'm pretty sure that's what he said when he goes, my dad forgave me for wrecking the car, but but the damage was done and somebody was going to have to pay for it. As it turned out, when we sold it on eBay again, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. When we sold it on eBay, uh, we sold it for, for a considerably less money because we ended up paying for the bumper. It didn't matter that we never talked about it. When an offense is done, it doesn't just disappear. We know that, uh, that when something is broken, it costs to fix it. Um, we know that when it's broken, something is, uh, needs to, it, there's a cost to forgiving. It doesn't just vanish into thin air. And for us as Christians, our stories began with a horrific realization that we were wrong, that we had done something wrong, and that you could be sorry about it, but you couldn't make yourself forgiven. Like, we know that our stories with Jesus started when we got this small glimpse of two in. The two incredibly important gospel truths. Next slide. That we are unholy. That we are sinful. That we are essentially bad. And that at the same time that God is incredibly good, holy, and loving. And when your relationship with Jesus Christ started is because you had some view of your sinfulness and God's holiness at the same time. And you knew that those two had to be diametrically opposed to each other. Like you got to look at yourself and maybe you were a teenager. Maybe you were uh, a nine year old and you were in a, a Sunday school class and your teacher put up on a felt board that you could go to heaven and live on clouds with angels, or you could go into feltboard fire if you didn't know Jesus, but that you had a choice to make, that God is holy, but you're headed in this direction. What do you want? And it's like clouds or feltboard fire. Easy choice. But the thing is, is that you got this image, this picture that God is holy and that you're not, and that something has to bridge the gap between those two things. I mean, seriously, all of our stories started with forgiveness in that overwhelming sense that maybe you were like a high school boy and you you were at a camp somewhere and you heard about your sinfulness and God's holiness and what he did to overcome that distance. And you were like, you couldn't understand it, but you were crying, you know, and as a high school boy, if you say, man, I was crying, that means something big happened. You know, I have these emotions and I don't know what to do with them, but something happened supposed to be a joke about high school boys. But y'all, like, it starts with knowing our need for forgiveness. The problem is that we spend so much time along the way thinking that we are supposed to grow out of that forgiveness. You're not supposed to grow out of forgiveness. All right? Do you remember what you were? Do you re- like, you were dead. You were dead. We like to think that we were like treading water in the middle of the ocean, like in our sin. We were stuck in our sin, treading water in the middle of the ocean. And it's like our, we're blowing bubbles, but our nose is just barely above the water. And then right as we're getting ready to go under, Jesus sweeps down and he gives us a hand. And you're like, oh, man, thank you, Jesus. I wouldn't have made it on, your, on my own. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, this book says that you were dead. 
Remember, you were dead in the trespasses in which you once lived. You were following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once walked. And you were by nature children of wrath. But God. But God. That's not what I say about you. That's what the book says about you. I don't want to say this stuff about you. I want you to like me. I just told you you were a child of wrath. We have to remember what the book says about us. And that our stories began with knowing our need for forgiveness and discovering our need for forgiveness. That's where your story with Jesus started, at least as far as our agency is concerned. You got a small piece of that gospel truth. And so we learned to pray, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Next slide. As. This is part two. As is an along the way word. As is an along the way word. Like as they went, as we were doing something, as we ate, as we played ping pong. This forgiveness that is done to us must grow throughout our lives. And your maturity as a Christian is not simply an attempt to lessen your need of forgiveness. Rather, your maturity as a Christian is a deepening understanding of your need for it. Our personal experience of forgiveness, that that forgiveness that is done to us, must grow along the way. But forgiveness, Jesus teaches, isn't something that's just done to us, but it's something that must be done through us as well. It must be done through us as well. And this is where you want to throw up your hands. This is where you want to say, Cliff, there's what? Cliff, you want me to forgive him? You want me to forgive her? You want me to forgive them? Cliff, you obviously don't know what he has done. Cliff, you obviously don't know what she has done. Cliff, you obviously don't know what they have done. Forgive them? You obviously don't know what they've done. To which I would say, Christian, you obviously don't know what you've done. All sin is cosmic treason against the king of the universe. You obviously have forgotten what you've done. Our supporting scripture today is the parable of the... um, unforgiving servant where jesus blatantly and clearly paints a picture about what happens if you don't forgive that if you are one who has been forgiven greatly and you choose to withhold forgiveness jesus paints a very stark reality of what happens in fact he ends it by saying so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us as we forgive others. I got to tell you, this is where like my whole gospel understanding of like there's nothing you can do to earn it. Jesus, there, this is, these are some of these passages where it's like, 
I don't think that our salvation is contingent on our action of forgiveness, but I also don't think that if we are, I also think that if we are truly forgiven, we will forgive. It's almost like a litmus test that if it's in you, it will come out of you. Like those old Gatorade commercials where they were black and white, but as the athletes would start moving, y'all, some of y'all remember these, they would start sweating. They would start sweating like the color of the Gatorade. And it was, it was pretty weird, but kind of cool at the same time. Um, if it's in you, which I think was their slogan at the time, it will come out of you. The results of unforgiveness in the parable for the unforgiving servant are very bad. He is thrown into a dungeon in order to pay a debt that we have already established that he can't pay. It should chill us and humble us and keep us honest as believers to read this parable very literally. So also my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That forgiveness that is done to us must be done through us. Otherwise, we're like a dishwasher that turns on that doesn't have the detergent. And the people who come in contact with us will be like the dishes that go through a dishwasher without detergent. They'll actually be worse for the wear. They'll be worse for the inaction because there was no transformation. There was only impact. But it would be good for us to understand what forgiveness is at this point and what forgiveness is not. Because there is a lot of pop theology uh, that claims to say this is what forgiveness is. You know, like, and a lot of times you'll, you'll hear uh, my wife watches Real Housewives. I don't watch Real Housewives. My wife watches Real Housewives. I only watch it when she's watching it because I love being with her. I'm not into the storyline. Um. But like you'll hear sometimes people in reality TV be like, I'll just, well, I've just chosen to forgive, you know, as, and we think that's what you do. Like it's this therapeutic thing that you do to yourself. But I've got this, I've got this chart that's going to help us here. Um, what forgiveness is, forgiveness is biblically speaking, forgiveness is the canceling of a debt or a refrain from demanding payment. So for you to be a forgiving Christian, you cancel the debt that someone has owed you and you refuse to make them pay. This is what Jesus did for us. Like the debt that was owed was paid by him. He refused to make us pay because like the servant in the parable, we cannot pay. We lack the uh, we lack the capital to pay our debt. Forgiveness is a relinquishing of revenge. It's essentially saying, I will no longer seek to punish you in word, deed, or thought. It is a relinquishing of revenge. Like revenge is not like something that's totally smiled on on in our culture these days. Tolerance is kind of the new Phariseeism. Like how could you dare be intolerant of someone and revenge kind of feels like intolerance and everything. So we don't want to do that. But for the vast majority of human history, the idea of revenge was like the grease that made culture go round. Like pretty much every war that has ever taken place is the result of seeking revenge. Every feud, every fight, every divorce for most of history is a seeking of revenge. Revenge is how it works. Andrew Peterson, the songwriter, wrote in one of his songs, Nature is red in tooth and in claw, and it seems to me that she's an outlaw. 
Like, this is how things work. We naturally seek revenge. As a Christian, we say we will not seek revenge. We will not seek to punish you in word, deed, or thought. And a lot of times, Christians, that's what you need to do. You need to make sure that you are not actively punishing people in your mind, in word, deed, or thought. Forgiveness is an act of the will. Like we discussed just a second ago, forgive, revenge is sort of like the natural pattern of things. Like you get me, I'm going to get you back. It is an act of the will. It's not something that just naturally bubbles up inside of you. We're like, oh, I want to forgive everybody because you don't. It's like anti-evolutionary in you, you know? I'm not advocating evolution, but that's, it's the, the course of, of so many centuries of history. We don't want to, but you have to choose to. It's an act of the will. And forgiveness is a relational transaction. It's when one side repents and the other side removes the moral debt that is owed. So the idea that you're going to forgive somebody and never tell them, or that you're that you're never gonna like that you're gonna actively try not to see them again is, is probably somewhat problematic, because you're basically holding that your forgiveness is you doing therapy to yourself. That's not what biblical forgiveness is. That's not what was done with us. But forgiveness is not. Next slide. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. It's important that we say that. Just because you forgive somebody does not mean that the relationship goes back to normal. That's not what that means. And a lot of times where we push back as as believers on the idea of this forgiveness that must be done through us is because we don't want to be naive. Like we don't want to appear to be stupid. And we feel like the forgiveness that Jesus is asking us to give others makes us morons. It makes us naive. It makes us children. But that's not actually in the Bible. There are consequences regardless of forgiveness. And many of us who have lived lives um, uh, in rebellion to God at some point, we have been forgiven for the sins that we committed, but we still bear the scars from them. It's just not held against us in the, in the, in court, in the courtroom of heaven because of what Christ did. It's not the absence of uh, consequences, like with the car. Somebody was going to have to pay. Forgiveness is also not anti-authoritarian. Continued lawlessness is not negated. I I cannot continue to sin against my dad, and he keeps forget. Like it doesn't matter how many times he forgives me; it, it doesn't make us equals. All right, he's still my dad. Forgiveness is not anti-authoritarian. Forgiveness is not the absence of judgment. It doesn't make us naive about what someone is or consistently does. A lot of people think that Jesus tells us not to be judgmental. That's actually wrong. Jesus does tell us to be judgmental. He tells us not to throw our pearls before swine, which means we'll have to judge what is a pearl and what's a swine. And even at one point in the Bible, he tells his, he tells people directly, he says, stop making bad judgments. Start making good judgments. He tells you, make good judgments. Great t-shirt campaign. I know this church loves t-shirts. Jesus says be judgmental. I will have no royalties on that. Um, But we should judge. It doesn't make us naive about what someone is or what they consistently do. 
Just because I'm not holding revenge against somebody doesn't mean, like I can forgive my neighbor, but I know that they still do really bad things. I'm not going to let my kid go play in their yard. I do have a judgment about this. However, I don't have to hate him for it and hold things against him. And forgiveness is not a therapeutic transaction. See, a lot of us think because it's like, oh man, if I have, if I harbor unforgiveness, it, it's like me drinking poison and expecting somebody else to drown. Yeah, I know. So the thing for me to do is just forgive so I don't drink the poison. Or I'm not, I'm not gonna hold on to it. I'm not gonna let this thing make me bitter anymore. So because for me, I need to get over this, I'm gonna forgive. It's not therapeutic. It actually has to take place. It's not just overcoming bitterness or anger or resentment. And finally, it's not forgetting. Forgiveness, biblically speaking, is not forgetting. When the Bible says that God forgets our sins, it doesn't mean that he goes absent-minded about them. It's not like he's walking around heaven one day and he sees his son and he goes, Son, I love you so much. I know you died for something, but what was it? I just, I can't remember. I forgot. No. God didn't forget what the Bible means by forgetting is that it's not holding our, it's not holding the consequences of our sin against us. It's not an absent mindedness. And it's not that we should be absent minded about the sins that other people commit against us as well. Again, it's that we will no longer seek to punish them or make them pay the debt that they owe to us. It doesn't make us naive. And finally, uh, next slide, forgiveness is expected of us. And forgiveness is not optional. It's in the book. It's in the book. I know that it's taking us uh, back quite a ways uh, to adventures um, in uh, early adventures in literature. Um, but, uh, but the first thing that takes place in a book is that you find out the setting and you find out the characters. Has it ever occurred to you that what G- one of the things that Jesus is doing in his sermon or in, in this prayer is that he's telling us what the setting and the characters are? Our Father, character, who art in heaven, setting. It's that um, there is a Father. We have a Father. Our Father is a King. He's also our Father, but He's also a King. And that there is a kingdom where He is the King in heaven. Is in heaven. Um. He is defining the reality of the story that each of his disciples lives by naming both setting and characters. The kingdom of heaven is the setting, and it's real, and it's now. And our petitions that Jesus tells us to pray for are founded in the reality of the kingdom that is. All right? The reason that you can ask for daily bread in God's kingdom is because nobody goes hungry in God's kingdom. So you ask for your daily bread because that's what the king does. The reason that you ask for spiritual safety is because he's a good king, a strong king. And that in his kingdom, his his subjects are safe. And so you can ask for that. You can ask that his kingdom would come and his will would be done because in his kingdom, it does come. It is victorious and his will is done as it is in heaven. And that he asks us to ask for forgiveness because that's what happens in his kingdom. These are founded in kingdom realities. Quick show of hands, how many of you... Like paying your tax. Does anybody here not pay your taxes? Just show of hands. That's okay. Don't actually raise your hand um, if you don't pay your taxes. Now, how many of you like paying your taxes? Anyone show of hands? Who likes to pay their taxes? 
Of course you don't like to pay your taxes. doesn't matter who's in office, whether it's big tax cuts or little tax cuts. The fact that there's taxes is a major bummer every year. Um, but why do we pay our taxes if we don't like it? Um, it's because if you don't, they'll get you. It might not be this year, and it might not be next year, but in seven years, you're going to get a letter in the mail. It says you're the subject of a random audit, and we looked back seven years ago, and you owe us money. You know, they will get you. Martha Stewart could do anything. She can make anything look good. I mean, seriously, give her rotting apples. She'll slice them up, put them in an oven, put twine through it, and then you've got the centerpiece of your Christmas tree, and you're Instagramming that. You know, and don't even get me started with what that woman can do with a cake. She can make anything look good, but not tax evasion. Um, We pay our taxes because there is a power and an authority that undergirds the system. It's the law. Forgiveness is the law of the kingdom, and it doesn't matter how you dress it up or justify it. If you don't forgive, it violates the king's ordinance. And the king's ordinance is that we would forgive. And this word, as, in Jesus' prayer, as means that one who does not forgive is one who has not been forgiven. Only one who forgives can expect to be forgiven, and also only one who is forgiven can be expected to forgive. And church, you have been forgiven, and so you must forgive. And so forgiveness at the end of the story, and we'll wrap it up here. Forgiveness is not just where our stories start, and it's not just what flavors our stories along the way. It's also the final destination. And when you ride, um, when you ride on metro transportation, there's a final destination. It's usually called the end of the line. Um, and for us, the end of the line is heaven. That's where our train is going. It's with us, with him forever. And the story that started with forgiveness will pull into the end of the line and we will know our full salvation and we will feel the full weight of all that we have put, that we have been forgiven for and the great powerful love that made forgiveness possible. And we, when we cross over to where sickness and sorrow and pain and death are felt and feared no more, we will know it. Look, y'all, the depth to which you understand and experience the love of Jesus Christ for you will be the degree to which you are transformed by it. Let's say that again. The depth to which you understand and experience the love of Jesus Christ for you will be the degree to which you are transformed by it. And for us, weary sinners lost and ruined by the fall, the love of Jesus is prototypically experienced in forgiveness. And when we reach that last page of the earthly chapters of this story and cross into eternity where we will be fully known and fully know, we'll feel the full force of all of the forgiveness that has happened to us to bring us into that undeserved glory. But what about the forgiveness that goes through us? What will that look like in eternity? I have to assume that it too will be perfected. I wonder uh, about frequently what it's going to look like for me to encounter people uh, that I have needed to forgive in heaven. I imagine these conversations and what they would look like. I don't want to give that conversation to you because I know that many of you are walking in here with incredible weight and wounds from a world that has done you wrong. And so it would be wrong for me to try to suggest to you what the healing for those, uh, for those relationships looks like. 
It would be wrong for me to provide for you a theodicy, which is a a philosophical justification for the goodness of God in the face of evil. It would be wrong for me to try to prescribe my theodicy to you. But I would say that we will be fully forgiven in heaven and we will be fully forgiving in heaven. The forgiveness that goes through us is not just going to stop like it was confined to this dispensation. And it's hard to imagine what that looks like, but I love the picture that comes in Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. Corey Ten Boom, in case you're not familiar, um, uh, she was a Dutch Christian whose family hid Jews during uh, the Holocaust. And after she came out of uh, the concentration camps where her family was imprisoned for uh, their part in, in harboring Jews, um, she had a great ministry. Um, and uh, this is what she says. She says, but the place where the hunger was the greatest for the message was Germany. Germany was a land in ruins, cities of ashes and rubble, but more terrifying still, minds and hearts of ashes. Just across the border was to feel the great weight that hung over that land. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, her sister's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying after I spoke, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, just as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to people in Blumendahl the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask him for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity for this man. And so again, I breathe the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his And when he tells us to love his enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself to do it. Maybe in heaven we will be able to forgive because the king of forgiveness will be standing right behind us. And that we will know and that our hearts will beat in rhythm to the words of the hymn, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray. So, Father, please forgive us our sins. Lord, please forgive us our sins. Please forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. By your grace and by your power, Father, not by ours. In Jesus' name, amen.